We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Home Where You Belong. At one time or another, most, if not all of us, ask ourselves three questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? And where am I going? Seeking answers to those questions is a normal part of the human experience. How seriously we take that pursuit can influence everything from the health of our self-identity to how much success we enjoy in life. So, what's the best way to discover meaningful answers? I don't have a silver bullet answer, but if you ask a genealogist, you might be encouraged to look in your rearview mirror. According to today's guest, genealogist Heather Murphy, many people are clueless when it comes to their past and the generations who came before them. They don't realize the impact of the past on their present and don't know how to utilize a knowledge of their past to achieve future possibilities. I'll talk with Heather about how to harness the power of genealogy to live our best lives. But first, I want to share what a cattle auction in Scotland, a plot to subvert the rightful succession to the English throne, and the host of Home Where You Belong, yours truly, have in common. Trust me, it relates. I've always been interested in genealogy. Earlier this year, I joined Ancestry.com and began digging into my family roots. After submitting my DNA, I received my ethnicity estimate, which is calculated by comparing my DNA against a worldwide panel to see which populations I most resemble. Not surprisingly, I turned out to be a real wasp, mostly English and Scottish, with a tiny bit of Swedish, Danish, Irish, and Welsh thrown in for good measure. No wonder I don't tan in summer. Through my research, I learned the name Alford first arose among the Anglo-Saxon tribes of Britain. The first instances of the surname were recorded in the Doomsday Book compiled in 1086 for William the Conqueror. I also discovered the UK has several towns named Alford, three in England in Lincolnshire, Somerset, and Surrey, and a fourth in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. At least two of the towns were named after old fords, shallow places where a river or stream can be crossed over by foot or horse. Apparently, my ancestors who lived nearby took the name for themselves. Thanks to input from other relatives and numerous hints from Ancestry.com, building my family tree was easier than expected. In only a few weeks, I had traced my paternal ancestry back to my 10th great-grandfather, Roger Alford, who lived in England in the 1500s. With this new family lineage in hand, I decided to take a trip to Scotland and England in October to celebrate my 60th birthday and dig a little deeper into my ancestral roots. I talked an old friend, Rob, into going with me and enlisted tour guides and drivers so I wouldn't have to drive on the wrong side of the road. First stop, Alford, Scotland, a beautiful little country village and home of the Alford Heritage Museum, dedicated to preserving and sharing the area's rural heritage. As I stepped inside, I was immediately taken back to my days as a young boy on my family's farm in Alabama. I'll let one of the museum's volunteers set the scene. 
Okay. Okay. So, so where are we? <laughs> well, we are standing in the original uh, cattle auction mark. This is so cool. For the village of Alford and the farms around about. And there were one of these markets in every town and village in Aberdeenshire selling animals. Wow. And this one opened in 1906. So originally we had this auction ring, which we're standing in, and then they added on this corridor of offices outside, and that's where the salesmen who dealt with the farming community had an office on market day. So the people who sold seeds and fertiliser and lime and all the things that were required by the farmers would come here on market day. There were just tiny little offices, and the farmers could pay their bills and order their supplies on market day. Great. So you've got the offices, the auction room. When you go through the back, there's the pens where the animals were kept. And if you can hear the tractor outside, there's another field outside, which also belonged to the market. So the entire complex is still in existence. So this is interesting because my father was a cattle farmer. And one of my earliest memories is going to a yeah. auction like this and sitting on something like that. Yeah. And so it's great that you're preserving, preserving that history. Yeah. Scotland was wonderful, but what I discovered in England was truly amazing. Before arriving in the UK, all I knew were the names of my great-grandfathers and where they were born and died. My 10th great-grandfather, Roger Alford, for example, was born and died in Hitcham in Buckinghamshire, about 24 miles west of London. That became our next stop. Most of the village has been absorbed by the town of Burnham, but there are a few structures remaining, including St. Mary's Church, which was built in the 12th century. After doing some research of her own, my tour guide, a wonderful English lady named Janet, discovered that my great-grandfather was buried inside the church. We found Roger's resting place along with the beautiful memorial sculpture showing him and his family at prayer. Roger, I would later learn, had ties to several pivotal figures in English history. He was private secretary to Sir William Cecil, who later became Lord Burghley and served as Secretary of State for King Edward VI and Queen Elizabeth I. My great-grandfather not only helped organize Burghley's business and governmental affairs, he also helped him avoid arrest for his alleged role in the plot to make Lady Jane Grey a Protestant queen instead of Mary I, a staunch Catholic. After serving Lord Burghley, Roger served two terms in the House of Commons and was even granted land by Queen Elizabeth. Roger's son, Edward Alford, my ninth great-grandfather, also made a name for himself in government, serving seven terms in the House of Commons between 1604 and 1628. Known as a country politician, he was described as pugnacious and prone toward an old English bluntness. Yep, that sounds like an Alford. A champion of free speech, Edward opposed government interference and the absolute power of the monarchy as wielded by King Charles I. He was an early supporter of the Petition of Right, which sought to balance power between the sovereign and parliament. In a speech some thought would be his undoing, Edward was quoted as saying, Let us give that to the king the law gives him, and no more. The king didn't arrest him, but he did appoint him high sheriff of Surrey, apparently to keep him from serving another term in Parliament. Edward was also buried inside a sanctuary, the Church of St. Peter in the East Sussex village of Hamsey. This beautiful church, which sits on a grassy knoll overlooking a river, is about the only thing left in the village, which was wiped out by the plague. 
villagers shut themselves off from contact with other communities for fear of spreading the disease, and many unfortunately starved to death. That's the sound of the church bell ringing when I visited the ancient building on a beautiful October afternoon. The current rector was kind enough to show me around and share some of the church's history. This is Chip Alford. I'm actually standing inside the Hamsey Church, which is located in what was the village of Hamsey, which is near Lewis, England. And I'm with the current uh, rector of the church, Reverend Ann Dunlop. Uh, thank you for chatting with us for just a second, um, Reverend Dunlop. Can you tell us just, so this is a very historical church. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about it? Yes, this is the parish church of St. Peter in Hamsey. And both churches in this parish are dedicated to St. Peter, which is unusual. And this happened because this church became unreachable. It's uh, effectively on, a, on an island surrounded by the river. Um, and in the day, there were no tarmac roads, so all the mm. villagers were travelling a long way. And the congregation got less and less, and the present rector at the time said this was intolerable. So he and his family paid for a new church we built in the close village of Ofen. So this became more or less a deserted church for a long time. Mm. It's uh, um, in the Doomsday Book. Uh, King Athelstan came here in uh, 925 and visited this church, which is extraordinary. Um, and there have been, by drones, they've seen that there was a manor house next door to it. So this church has been through several incarnations and often deserted. So once people stopped coming here, um, it then became a mortuary chapel for a long time. Mm. And so it wasn't really cared for, but people were brought here because this is the churchyard, so they'd stay overnight here and then be buried uh, the following day. And then it became neglected. And in the 1920s, Lady Elsie Schiffner, who then went to live in America and Rhode Island, uh, she um, effectively saved the church. She gathered people around and said, look, this can't be like it is, and she got money to repair the roof. And it was fine for a while, and up to about 15 years ago, it gradually got worse and worse. Mm. And then again, the same thing happened. Um, Lady Alice Renton got together um, a group of people and started a charity called the Friends of Hamsey, who now financially look after this building, but not the surrounding area. So it's an ancient site, probably about 3,500 people buried here on this small hillock. Um, the very ancient graves, and I imagine they just sort of piled people on top of each other in the end, and a, a new churchyard at the back, which is um, a newer one. So the Victorians never got their hands on it, so it's not been touched. It's very much like it always was. Obviously, over time, it's you know, become it was a Norman church. Bits get blocked up, and you can see where there were doorways, and there aren't doorways anymore. But it's bare. There's no electricity here. We suffer, we Brits, um, <laughs> but we're stoic. Uh, so we have services here in the summer months when you can see enough to read, see what yes. you're reading. Yes. And there's no, no toilets, so uh, you have to go and find a convenient bush, which they used to do. And it's quite a long walk up here, so it's quite an isolated church. So it's, do, you, do, you, do you get uh, many people like me coming, looking for their family roots? or we people? Do. We get loads of people coming up here trying to trace family um, because people have gone all over the world. And it's also, it's an interesting place. Um, it's um, Marmite. Do you know the expression? You either like it or you don't. Oh, yes. And it has um, people that say, oh, I've got no time for Hamsey and uh, we, you know, we're spending all this money and it's just a, a drain, etc." Sure. Other people say it's part of our heritage, which is where I am. Um, and it's a beautiful place. And they, it's what they call a thin place, if you know that expression. Um, so um, people say... 
they come up here and they feel something in the atmosphere of the place and just sitting around it in the graveyard, you know, over all those thousands of, hundreds of years of worship and people coming here and being buried here, that they sort of, and it's high up, so you're looking over the river and you're looking over towards Lewis and it feels like it's a spiritual place. It's yes, got that absolutely. sort of feel to it. So lots of people come here and they like to sit outside. It's a dead end, literally. It ends in the yes. graveyard. So you can't go any further. <laughs> so they come up here and they'll, they'll sit outside and just enjoy looking at the view and being inside. And when it's lit by candles... And we oh, have, but that's um, beautiful. Uh, especially Christmas, you know, when people uh. come up here and... And the pews at the back are, are quite interesting because they are made to be so excruciatingly uncomfortable that it's totally impossible <laughs> for you to fall asleep. They're very narrow and there's a bar that goes right across your back so you can't sort of slump. Are those original to the yes, original church? Yes, they would wow. be really, really old. The oak is as hard as stone. It's oh an goodness. extraordinary thing. And, and when I baptise a child up here in the font, I think how many thousands of children have been baptised in this old Norman font with its lead lining and how many couples have stood here and got married? And how many bodies have stood here before uh, they went? So it's, it's the, it does the give you history. kind of a yeah, spiritual a, feeling. I mean, is, just knowing, I'm thinking, knowing that my, name, my ninth great-grandfather and his, his family, his son also, I think, went here. He's actually buried somewhere else. But he was actually knighted by King Charles. And oh, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. learning about all this for the yeah, first time yeah, on this trip. So it's yes. been really... Really interesting, but what a beautiful the, place. Yeah, standing in the place where ancestors of yours would have been. And they would have known this place, and they wow. would have walked here and, and worshipped here. It's hard to describe the feelings I had that day. I thought about Edward, his wife Judith, and their children worshipping in that church. They had a daughter and six sons, including three, John, Henry, and Edward, named after his father, who served as members of Parliament in the House of Commons, continuing the family tradition. The second Edward was my eighth great-grandfather. You may have heard me tell Reverend Dunlop that he was knighted by King Charles I. So I wasn't surprised to learn that when the English Civil War broke out between Parliament and the King, Sir Edward supported the Royalist cause. His brother, John, the eldest son, fought on Parliament's side. I wonder if they faced off in battle. John died before the end of the war, and Sir Edward inherited his brother's land. Ironically, it turned out to be a painful acquisition. The royalists lost the war, the king was beheaded, and those who supported him, like Sir Edward, were heavenly fined as traitors based on the amount of land they owned. Edward ended up paying the equivalent of more than 600,000 pounds in today's currency. He died a few years later without a will, likely a broken man. Lady Anne Alford, Edward's second wife and the mother of his two children, John and Frances, outlived her husband by 40 years. She, too, is buried inside a church, St. Mary's Broadwater in East Sussex. I visited there, too. I didn't get to go inside, but I later learned the inscription on her tomb reads, Here lies Lady Anne Alford, wife of Sir Edward Alford, knight. Sir Edward's son, John, my seventh great-grandfather, was apparently the first Alford in my lineage to make the journey to America. There are conflicting records about how and when he got to New Kent, Virginia, but considering what his family experienced, a new start must have seemed like a good idea. I left England feeling proud of my heritage and eager to decipher the rest of my family story. I know a little bit more about who I am and where I come from. I'm still figuring out what impact the experience may have on where I go from here. 
Okay, now you, like me, know a little more about my family's history. Hopefully you enjoyed the story, but does it really matter? I mean, other than some great anecdotes to share at cocktail parties, are there any real benefits to digging into your family roots? Let me introduce someone who can help answer that question. Genealogist Heather Murphy, host of the podcast Stories in Our Roots, has spent over 20 years helping people learn who they are and where they come from, performing client research and speaking at events around the country, including Roots Tech, the largest conference in the family history industry. Entrepreneurs and professionals work with Heather to leverage the power of their genealogy to develop greater curiosity, clarity, and courage to live to their greatest potential. Heather, welcome to Home Where You Belong. I really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Chip. I'm glad to talk with you today. That's great. Um, I, I, I really loved your website. And one thing I noticed particularly was a quote that was on the homepage that said, to understand yourself more deeply, to let go of what holds you back, to be confident in who you are, you need to know one thing. Your story didn't start with you. Um, I understand that even better after a recent trip I took to the UK to look into some of my family history. So how is it though that learning about our ancestors helps us? Are, are there real benefits? Absolutely, there are. A lot of times we look at our lives and we just focus on our experience, which is common and understandable. But our experience didn't just start with us. We are impacted from generations before us and our influence will continue forward in the future. So the more we understand about our past, the more we really understand who we are, because we didn't just start at a, as a blank slate. <laughs> there were things that, that shaped us. And as we understand the past, we understand our present. And that gives us the power to make different choices in our lives than we would without that knowledge. All right. So it could really have an impact on decision-making today, what we learn from our past. It, it really does. And to understand why you think the way you do, um, most of the way, most of the time, our, the way we think is shaped in our younger years. And we get how we think from our parents who got it from their own experiences and from their parents who got it from their experiences. So we see this chain of beliefs being passed down. And like for my family, my all my grandparents, their childhoods were spent in homes without electricity and running water. Oh, wow. So imagine the experiences that they had as children that shaped their beliefs. They're completely different than 2022 <laughs> and how my children is, are shaping their beliefs. And if we just hold on to those beliefs of the days when there's no electricity, does that really serve us now or what parts do and what parts don't? And what can you learn from that? You know, A, to appreciate that you do have electricity, right? But yeah, that's really interesting. You know, recently I was, uh, I was reading an article about research in the field. I think it's called epigenetics, which showed um, trauma experienced in one generation can negatively impact the health and well-being of genetically related future generations. Apparently, Trauma leaves uh, some kind of chemical mark on a person's genes or DNA that is inheritable. Um, I'm just wondering, are you aware of that or what your thoughts are on that and how you think it relates, if at all, to genealogical research, the kind of work that you do? 
Yeah, that concept is called gene expression. So the DNA that we inherit from our ancestors doesn't really change. It gets mixed up differently as we inherit a little bit more from our mother's side, maybe than our father's. And so a little bit different variation from our grandparents. <clears throat> and you can see this as if you do a DNA test with your siblings, how your DNA is a little bit different. Hmm. But through gene expression, what happens is that the instructions in that DNA decide whether proteins get turned on or off or kind of turned up or turned down. And so the way they express themselves is different. There was a study with mice and mice are a little bit easy to study, study generationally because the generations are a little bit closer together than people. Don't last as long. The, yeah. Yeah. They traumatized one generation of the mice. Every time they smelled cherry blossoms, they got shocked. Oh. And then, so eventually they had this trauma response so that it, once they smelled the cherry blossom, that trauma response news, yeah. came up. The next generation, they didn't do anything to them. And then that third generation, that grandchild generation, they just exposed them to the smell of cherry blossoms and they had a trauma response, even wow. though they and their parents never experienced that trauma themselves. And so, yes, it does get passed down just like other things like heart disease or propensity to diabetes, but that doesn't mean that we're just doomed with what's passed down. Sure. We can, just like preventing diabetes, you can make lifestyle choices to do that. And with the trauma, you can also make lifestyle choices to deal with that. And also, if trauma is passed down, then so are, is the opposite, that resilience, the courage, those positive things that they haven't necessarily studied, but those are also passed down genetically. That's a, that's a good thing to know, too, yeah. Yeah, so that, yeah, you could really see the impact there, but just being aware of that, like you said earlier, might make you make some different decisions yourself, but if you weren't aware of it, you might not know what's, you know, triggering some of those kind of things for you. Really yeah, interesting. And it doesn't and it doesn't necessarily need to be a big T trauma like sure. a Holocaust survivor or World War II um in other ways like being bombed in London. It can be just small things like not having enough food as a child, of wondering where you're going to get food or moving around a lot. It can be smaller things that pass down um ways that people have adapted. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I was just in, earlier in this episode talking about um, on my recent trip, I had learned that um, my great grandfather had fought in one of the English civil wars on the side of the king, and his brother had actually fought on the other side on behalf of parliament. His brother died. I'm not sure yet if it was in the war or whatever, but, but once the king lost, um, the king was beheaded. <laughs> not funny but and then my uh grandfather was heavily fined by for all the property down so he basically i think went broke which which is why i think that next generation moved to america so you know I, I haven't really fully processed that yet but i'm wondering you know you know maybe the lesson is you know don't put your trust in kings but um it was just really interesting to learn that information um I know you've, you've worked with, um, you know, individuals, families, entrepreneurs, business people. Um, in what ways can family history research increase our confidence in ourselves and in our future? 
one of the biggest ways is giving us a sense of perspective. Like I was saying before, we kind of get centered in our lives and we don't see our ups and downs very well. We just know that right now we're having a hard time and we don't know <laughs> if we're going to come out of it. But if we look at past generations, we have the opportunity to see their whole life. We can see those ups and downs. We can see that, yes, life was hard, whether because of somebody's own choices or circumstances that were beyond their control and how they navigated them and got through them. And sometimes it's through heroic things. And sometimes it's just by putting one foot in front of mm -hmm. the other and just getting through it. And another way is that knowing where you come from is very grounding. And in my podcast, as I talk to different people about their experiences researching their family, it it gives them a firmer foundation to build on, to be able to do what they want to do. They have inspiration that they can look to. They know that within them, people can do hard things and that they can push forward and make something not only for them, but for future generations. And that can be really empowering. Absolutely. Sounds definitely sounds that way. Um, how, how earlier you mentioned that, uh, you know, not only trauma or negative things can be passed down or inheritable, but also positive things like, like resilience. How does learning ancestral stories or doing family history research help a person become more resilient? There was a study in the early 2000s um, by Emory University, and they were studying teenagers type area. And what they were looking at is what was the effect of when they knew their family story. And it didn't have to be anything elaborate. They didn't have to know six generations back, but just a little bit of, of their sense of self to, and to know that their family had been through hard things, whether it's their parents or grandparents. And that increased their self-esteem and helped them get through things. They even went back and looked at them after 9-11 and those group of kids that had that basis that knew where they came from got through that time period a lot better than those people that didn't. Interesting, really interesting. And it's been interesting, like when you are more resilient, it, the relationship between relationship and connections and resilience is really fascinating to me because when you have strong relationships, your cortisol levels go down and your oxytocin levels go up. You have greater self-esteem. You have that sense of support and community and um, a sense of stability. And so as you strengthen your relationships through family history, which can be learning about ancestors that have passed or those generations that are living as well, you strengthen that relationships and that strengthens the resilience. And then the resilience also helps you, you know, have that perspective, have a little bit more optimism. You're maybe not so judgmental of other people. And then that feeds in to having better relationships. And so it's just, it's, it's really interesting to see when people know where they come from and they have that perspective that they can say, okay, this hard time is going to pass a pandemic. We know that there was a pandemic a hundred years ago <laughs> and they made it through, 
we can make it through our own experiences that at that time, time that parallel um, looking at the past to help us get through the present. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. You, you, you touched on this a, a bit, but how, how will spending time with our family trees actually improve relationships um, with our living family, with people who are still with us? Now, I guess as I was hearing you talk, I was thinking sometimes with family members or relatives, you know, maybe some we don't get along with, we tend to look at the things that are different between us. But is part of it that through like family history, we see the threads that kind of are common in your family or, or what else is it that can help you um, improve relationships with your family? Yeah, I see it kind of in two kind of buckets. Okay. And the first one is that you learn more of their story, whether um, that your parent or your grandparent there's the anecdote of where you're driving on the down the street and somebody in front of you is driving way too slow and you get so mad at them because you're trying to get <laughs> where you need to go and then you pass them and you see it's your grandma oh my and you're you're <laughs> you totally change because you know that person and you know that story and you're like oh grandma you're fine never mind it's totally okay that you're going slow perspective right yeah Right. And just knowing that person's story. Oh, grandma is 87 years old and she's just being safe and she's totally okay. Whether if it was just some stranger, our our interaction with them would be completely different. Uh, One of my guests, she didn't understand why her father parented the way that he did. Mm -hmm. She was a teenager, just didn't get along at all. But then when she was in her um, 20s, she decided to learn more about his family because she didn't know very much at all. And she learned, they were from Puerto Rico, she learned that at as like an eight or nine-year-old, he would go and get on the ferry, cross the bay to the city, and shine shoes to earn money for his mom's medication. Wow. And then his mom died at when he was 11, he and his siblings were taken away from his alcoholic father and given to somebody else to raise. And so the woman that she knew as her grandmother wasn't even blood related. And as she learned that about her father and she could see this little boy working in the city to help his mother, lost his mother. And the generations before that too, there were more um, than the father, his mother, had died too when he was young and you see this generation of men growing up without their mothers because they died when they were young and she could see her father in a completely different light she understood why he was doing the things he did because of his circumstances when he was a child that knowledge totally totally changed your perspective right it does and even just in doing family history you can open up conversations that might not have come up before. Uh, One time I just last year, I was at my grandmother's house scanning photos. And we were scanning a photo of her dad. And all of a sudden, she told me of the day that he died when she was nine years old, Mm -hmm. of what it was like, they went to the hospital, but he wasn't conscious, they pulled him out of school to see him, but they couldn't see him. 
And by the time she came home from school that day, her mother was just in the kitchen and said, your dad's died. And my grandma was just standing there and thinking, well, now what? And just having, we were just scanning photos. And yeah, I got this very personal moment in her life that she'd never talked about before. And so in those moments that we we ask our family members questions, whether it's our parents or our aunts and uncles, about different things that happened, we can understand our family better by knowing their story. This is well, this is really positive what we're talking about. I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, I have learned some things. I'm I'm still doing some research. I have learned some things that I'm not really thrilled about, you know, my family, like they apparently were slave owners, which um, I wasn't happy to learn. But I, I'm wondering, are, are there some negative aspects of family history research that people should be aware of? Yeah, because like you mentioned, everything isn't sunshine and roses <laughs> in our family tree, just like it's not in our lives. And sometimes things come up that are we are really conflicted with. If you're going to take a DNA test, be prepared that there might be some prices along the line. Mm. Um, sometimes that might be in your family. Um, sometimes it might mean something for somebody else's family. I had someone reach out to me and be like, oh, look, we're cousins, but I can't figure out how. And I looked at the results and figured out which pair of great, great grandparents we should have in common and said, okay, these people should be on your tree. And she said, uh, no, they're not. Mm. Well, it turned out that her mother's father wasn't who they thought it was. Oh my. And it was related to, to my family. And so sometimes you have to be the person that tells somebody that's they're not actually related. So that can be really tricky. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is finding out things that you didn't want to know. One sure. woman I talked with, she was mostly raised by her grandfather and she loved that man so much. He was so wonderful. But one day after he'd passed, she was going through his library and pulled off a journal off of his shelf and found out that he was part of the Nazi party in Germany. Oh my goodness. Um, so she put it right back on the shelf and she didn't look at it for years and years and years. But finally she got to the point where she just had to resolve it sure and so she got it out and she read it she learned more about what the nazi party was he was a doctor working in berlin helping people with all the bombing and everything um but still what was it that made him want to be part of that party and so she studied the history and and everything to better understand why he chose to make that decision and had to work at at a, at her own pace. Sometimes you'll find something and you'll be like, that's okay. I can deal with it. And sometimes it'll take a while. And sometimes you might even need to go talk to a therapist about it. It just depends on the, oftentimes on how close it is to you and, and personally your own experiences and how it hits you at different, you can experience one thing and your sibling can not even think anything of it. But that doesn't mean that the way you feel when you learn about something isn't valid. And it's totally okay to set it aside and work through it at your own time and your own pace in your own way. Sure, sure. That's that's good, good input to just to remember that, you know, 
um, while hopefully, and, and you will, I'm sure, find out good things about your family. You, there are, every family has a skeleton in the closet somewhere or things they may, you know, wish people didn't know. But sometimes just, even though that may be hard to hear or learn, um, it might help you process or understand why certain things happened or why people feel a certain way about things. So personally, I'd rather have the information, but it is a good reminder to know um, you need to be prepared for that, that kind of um, reveal. Yeah. And burying stuff doesn't mean that you're solving it. And that that's one of my big pushes for when I work with people is you're not just finding out information to put on a chart. Mm -hmm. You're finding out information to change your understanding of yourself and how you want to move into the future. And so mm -hmm. that means facing the bad with the good. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, the value and the importance and the ramifications of, of, of research in our family history, but we haven't really talked about the process yet. I'm curious about your thoughts on the best process method or, or tools out there for researching family history. I, I've used things like Ancestry.com and FamilySearch, and I've also gotten lost in a lot of internet rabbit holes. Um, do you think there's some approaches that are better than others, or what are your thoughts on that? I think it depends on your goal. If you're just wanting to take up time and have a hobby that is like putting together a puzzle or painting a picture, you can sit down and just get lost in it. And that's mm -hmm. just your time to shut off the world and and just get lost in, in this own pursuit, this own puzzle of your own. But if you want something more and if you don't want to be going in circles all the time the best way is to have a plan and to say okay what do I want to learn and how am I going to get there and that translates into anything you want to accomplish in life you need a plan and steps to get you there what, what's your and then you keep revising yeah. yeah you keep revising that as you go along you go and you look for a marriage record and you can't find it well now you need to revise your plan and just keep kind of referring back to that. And, and for me, kind of when family history is getting to that sense of self and, and part of that is being able to calm your mind. And so if you have a plan and you're not just running around willy nilly everywhere, you're slowing yourself down to think about the things that you're finding. It's not just like finding a census record and finding the next one and then mm -hmm. just putting them in your pile and look, I've got this great collection of records, but you haven't put together the story. You haven't thought about what that document is telling you, kind of the story between the lines. Um, I have a gene professional genealogist friend and she likened it to sitting down at a slot machine <laughs> and just pulling the lever, pulling the lever, pulling the lever and just getting these documents out. But your, your brain is kind of shutting off. And so I encourage people to, to turn your brain on, slow down, and really get to know these people record by record um, as you're doing it. I love Ancestry. Um, it's really easy. You can build your trees on there. You can make you're, as you're many as you want. You can Ancestry. make them com. private. Ancestry.com. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, you can 
make it private so you don't have to worry about if you're making mistakes or if you have something but you're not quite sure it's right. You just make it private. You can build at your heart's content. And um, family search is a great one uh, for secondary. And then if you have uh, a lot of British Isles, Find My Past has a good collection of, there. And then looking at like county archives and county mm. um, uh, state or county libraries and archives, they've got a lot of records as well. Um, but definitely have that plan in place and don't be in such a hurry. I, I was really surprised. I, you know, I think one of the reasons I didn't have more information when I, before I left for my trip to the UK is I thought this was the 1500s or 1600s. They're, they weren't, they're not going to have any records and they're there. Nobody's going to know. And it turns out, I mean, England had been a country for, you know, hundreds of years by then and they had a system and they did have records. The issue was more when they first got to America and we're setting everything up, it was harder, it's been harder to find some of that information until it became more settled and established. And so, yeah, you don't just assume that you're not going to find anything if it was uh, longer ago than you, than you might have imagined. Um, well, thanks for talking about the process a minute, but I know that you've actually created a process of your own for family research called Traceline Success, which is featured on your website. Um, and we will have a link to Heather's um, website in our um, show notes and also on our website. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about Traceline Success, what it does, and maybe what's different or unique about that from other services? I help my clients to strengthen their core sense of self by learning their family history so that they can make their own version of success in their lives. So usually we only work within like the last four to six generations. It's more so just as we get, you know, 50% of DNA from each of our parents, those, those close generations are where we have the biggest impact to understand why we have the beliefs and thoughts that we do, how we interpret the world. So I take my clients and I have them research that. A lot of them have a family tree, but they weren't actually the ones who researched it. Mm -hmm. So we start them off from scratch. They build their own family. They bring in one document at a time and they build that story because it is an introspective process about learning about yourself while you're learning about your ancestors. And so I have different ranges where I have it in a group program launching in January where they have a family tree and they're somewhat familiar with family history. They just want to learn how to change themselves through doing that um, up to somebody who doesn't know anything about their family history. I do the research for them, but then I put it in a system and they put all the pieces together. They build their tree. Hmm. They write the narratives of their ancestors so that they have that time to be introspective. And so that's kind of how that system works. It moves through I have that lined out as curiosity, clarity, and courage. That you have the curiosity to learn more about yourself and your ancestors, clarity as you do so, and the courage to live your life as you want to live it. That's awesome. So it's it sounds like you're 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 you would basically be benefited from having the support of a professional guide, but you're making them and are encouraging them to invest in the process because they need to spend the time with the information and records to get it. But sometimes it helps to have a professional 
to assist you with that process? Absolutely. Whether it's finding records or asking the questions. For instance, I interviewed one person about her grandfather who was an entrepreneur and making soap and everything. And she was like, yes, and I make soap and I'm like my grandfather. And then I was like, well, what about his wife? She was the pharmacist who made it possible for them to have the drugstore. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I never thought about that because she had died early in life mm. and she, she had never thought to research. So I ask the questions where I see the holes that somebody doesn't see themselves. Sure. Well, I do just have a final question that I always ask everybody at the end of the program. And it's pretty simple. It's just, what makes you feel most at home? Well, for me, it is family. I have loved learning about my ancestors my since I was a child. And then moving around as much as we did, it was like an average of two years, but every two years moving, but most of the time it was less than that. There was a couple, four years places, but I always had my family with me, no matter where we were going or what we we're doing. I had the family that I knew would always be there for me, no matter where I lived. That's awesome. That's a great, great answer. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting. If, if you're interested in learning more about Heather and the services she provides um, uh, and the podcast, and tell us the name of your podcast again, Heather. It's Stories in Our Roots. Stories in Our Roots. And we'll include a link to that as well. But her website is heathermurphy.com. Is that, is that right? Heather C. Murphy. Heather, ooh, I'm glad I asked. HeatherCMurphy.com, and we'll reference that. But thanks so much, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Great. It was great to talk with you. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about Heather Murphy's work in genealogy and her Traceline success process, visit her website at HeatherMurphy.com. I've included a link in the show notes and on the resources page of our podcast website, HomeWhereYouBelong.com. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.